listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 R. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week February 13 to February 17. Highlights this week uh, include we had a chat to the director and writer of the new book and doco The Family. That's Rosie Jones and the writer is Chris Johnston. And also I had a bit of a chat about my nephew who wrote out his 10 wishes. Quite a list it was. And then we talked about things that your partner likes that maybe you don't like so much, but you go along with. And we talked to Simon Hinckley from the Melbourne Museum about Gordian worms, which are probably the most disgusting creature I've ever heard of. Rosie Jones is the writer, director and co-producer of a new documentary called The Family about the bizarre Australian cult headed by Anne Hamilton Byrne. It's in cinemas from 23rd February. She's also collaborated on an accompanying book of the same name with the writer Chris Johnson, published by Scribe. They're both joining us in the studio now. Welcome to Breakfasters, Rosie and Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Anne Hamilton Byrne was at one stage almost a household name in Australia. I suspect perhaps not so well known today. Who was, or is, I should say, Anne Hamilton Byrne? She was the lead, or is, she's 96. She was the leader of a cult called The Family. Um, it started in the 1960s and became pretty famous in about 1987 when half a dozen kids were released from a property at Lake Eildon. And people might remember the pictures of very um, pudding bowl blonde children who were released, identically dressed, released from this property. Everyone you interview in the book describes Hamilton Byrne as very charismatic, almost almost magical powers in, in, a, in terms of influencing people. Charisma is a very difficult trait to pin down. Did you get a sense of that power and how it worked? Uh, I think she, she, she picked on um, people at a very vulnerable time in their lives, particularly um, middle-aged women in the, in, the, in the late 60s going into the 70s. Um, she sort of, I think she exploited the sort of, the, 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 the era, the times as well. It was a time of change um, after that sort of post-war 50s thing when people were seeking or searching for something. I think she exploited that. But in terms of her personal charisma, I don't know, Rosie, what would you think? I mean, she was, she was a very striking sort of statuesque woman, um, she professed to have psychic powers, which she she played a few tricks on people and they believed that. I think she was just plain sexy. She was blonde. <laughs> she, she, had, she was quite voluptuous. She had very piercing blue eyes. I think a lot of men would have come to the group because they thought she was gorgeous. I'm fascinated by the psychology of someone that starts a cult. Did you gain any insight into where this came from in her mind? Because when I read the book, she seemed to go from fairly normal person with a sketchy background that you couldn't kind of quite work out to spiritualist leader who told people she was Jesus Christ reincarnate. How does that happen? Well, I think she had a... She had a um, uh, uh, um, an unfortunate childhood. Her 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 father was um, uh, went to both wars and were, and and was kind of itinerant um, after the after the the war, the second war. Um, and her mother was um, spent twenty seven years in in mental hospitals in Victoria mainly. Um, I think there were seven kids. Um, I think she was trying to build a family that she never had. Mm. 
Mm. Well, Rosie, you mentioned the, the the image that people might remember is that of the little children with the hair all dyed peroxide blonde. The children seem to have been the main victims, not the only victims, but the main victims of the cult. Why did Hamilton Byrne want so many children? What did she do to them? Uh, well, she told them that she was trying to create a family and the reason that they looked, they were made to look identical was so that they looked like a family. Um, in terms of treatment, she treated them appallingly. Uh, she had a book of rules and she and her husband spent a lot of time overseas, but the kids were looked after by people that they called the aunties and uncles. And, I mean, the rules were pretty strict if they didn't adhere to the rules and new ones that would be made up you know all the time uh they would be beaten they were starved they were tranquilized um they are pretty traumatized still by the treatment that they received how difficult was it approaching these children now as grown adults then to interview them and talk to them about this because you're dealing with people that have i imagine imagine a lot of kind of post-traumatic stress and have been through a lot did you have to kind of approach it in a different way to usual um absolutely yeah yes i mean i i did the preliminary research and i guess it took me a very long time to actually go and talk to the kids i talked to a lot of people around the periphery mm. of the group before i went in to talk to people that i thought had been really traumatized so i spent a lot of time talking to adults before i really tackled the kids former kids the the relationships that Rosie formed with um, the former kids and and a lot of the other important people, I mean before before I even came on board in the project, they were those relationships were already, um, if not cemented, then then you know fully formed. There was a there was a you know there was there was trust there between between Rosie and the producer Anna and a lot of the people in it. So um, that 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 that's sort of when I parachuted in. Yeah. And did they trust you just as much, kind of, because of the association? Um, they ca- some of them, ca- yeah. They, ca- I think they came to in the end. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So this was a cult with very strange views, regularly abusing seemingly huge quantities of LSD, and yet they seem to have been protected by members of the um, Melbourne establishment for a long period of time. Why was that? Well, I think the I mean the the cult had had long tentacles into into Melbourne society, so into um, political spheres, into the judiciary. Um, but I think I think there was also a sense that uh, they were better left alone, that it was too hard, that it was too complex to investigate. I mean the police the police dilly dallied for a long time until they got serious about it. Um, there were certainly very good connections, though, mm. and and there was an unwillingness to to look at it because it was so strange. And the cult had a had a motto too, where they sort of um, uh, un, unseen and unheard and unknown. They kept very quiet. Mm-hmm. I also think it was a very different time in terms of policing, and that police didn't consider it their job to go into domestic situations. And this was a situation that really had a lot of children and a lot of women. And so they didn't, at the time, see it as policing. I always think of Melbourne at this time as a very conservative place, but I was struck by the fact that people were very open to spiritualism. 
you know, different types of religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, yoga. Is this, you know, did you, was this a surprise to you to uncover this side of Melbourne or where did this come from? I mean, it was the 60s and 70s. It was, you know, um, flower power and yeah. the Beatles and hippies and yogis and it was everywhere. Even but with professionals, though, I think that's what struck me. They were often accountants mm. or lawyers. It wasn't, you know... The kid doing LSD down the street. <laughs> I think there was an expansion of interest in um, all sorts of religions and in yoga and in all of that stuff throughout. Um, but yes, it was surprising that this group of very conservative people, but they were all searching for something. Mm-hmm. They were looking for a different way of life and so conservative but not quite. You're right though, it wasn't, it wasn't um, a hippie cult, although mm. it started as a yoga group. You're right. It was professionals. I mean, there were there were amongst the um, the men involved. There were a surprising number of architects, uh, doctors, psychologists, lawyers. Mm. Mm. The book opens with a scene of you meeting Anne Hamilton Byrne, where she's in an um, old people's home suffering from um, dementia. What was that like meeting someone that you've been researching for so long and finally being face to face with her? Oh, it was it was profound. I mean, but it was also sort of vexed because she she her dementia is so serious that she she's sort of nonsensical now. So I mean, for that reason, she can't be um, called to account for her um, alleged criminal activities, and, and neither can she be interviewed by us because her her answers would be would be meaningless. But it was a profound experience to sit with her, mm. and particularly because she was clutching this doll which is a common thing in a dementia ward, but she had this sort of doll in her arms and she was incredibly tender with this doll. And just something about that was a very powerful image compared to what had happened to the kids before under we, her care. Before we let mm. you go, what do you think the legacy of this story is? Do you think something like the family could happen again? Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> really? I think... I think um, um, possibly to not not to this extent, but I mean, cults and sects are very common. They they're, they're everywhere. They're 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 sort of hidden in plain sight. But to get to to get away with what she got away with in terms of um, stealing children through through the adoption process, I think there's more checks and balances now that would 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 not let that happen. The documentary is entitled The Family. It's out in cinemas on the 23rd of February. The book of the same title is out now through Scribe. We've been talking to Rosie Jones and Chris Johnson, two of the people behind both of those projects. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So my, uh, I have a very um, contemplative, what's the word, someone that contemplates things a lot. Contemplative. Thank you. Contemplative. Thank you, Jefferson. Um, <laughs> never going to win now. You started. What, what you, well, that's what you wanted. Why did someone make a joke about my hands as well? So my nephew is quite a, a con- what is it again? Contemplative. Contemplative young man. Um, and he was sitting in the car the other day and he said to his mum, he goes, Mum, I've got ten wishes. And so she said, all right, when we get home, you write them down and then I will take a photo of that and send it to my sister, which she did. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So this is my nephew's wish list and I just thought I'd share it because some of them are pretty great. Number one, I think we'll all agree, this this is one of the best wishes you could ask for. 
Number one, ten more wishes. Uh-huh. Oh, that old. <laughs> that old one, but a good yeah. one. That old chestnut. More wishes, but still only writes ten wishes out. Number two, <laughs> a Harry Potter wand that actually works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a wand, <laughs> isn't it? Just a wand. But I just, that. just a stick if it doesn't work. I'm sick of all these Harry Potter wands <laughs> that, that don't, don't work. work. I just want a Harry Potter that actually works. Uh, three. <laughs> Um. Oh yeah, being able to uh be te- te- to use teleportation, and so he said to his mum, "Yeah, so we can go to London without the time or the money to like, visit yeah, Harry Potter. Yeah, to go to Harry Potter no, world. That would I think, be very handy. Yeah, I think he has been to Harry Potter world, and that's probably still weighing on his mind. <laughs> um, <clears throat> number four, never miss a shot, as in basketball. Yes. Ah. He's big on the basketball. So first few wishes are all Harry Potter focused. Mm. Then it moves into basketball. Does he realise that if he had a, had a Harry Potter wand that worked, he could probably just make all the other wishes come true? I don't think he's thought that through. Okay, right. But also, yeah. maybe, the, but also I wonder if there's um, maybe a Harry Potter wand. Because I've got, I had friends that had a Harry Potter wand that was a remote control, so you could wave it and change the channel on the TV. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Really? Really? Yeah, it's so great. They had to pre-program it and stuff, but it was this, yeah. I have never heard of that. Are you making this up? No, 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 it's true. Oh, cool. they, you can get it from Harry Potter World. So I wonder if he had seen other things like that and he thinks, like, just, mine's just a stick. I want one of those ones that, you it know, actually something. do stuff. Anyway. Mm. I wonder if that would get old pretty quick, though, the changing the TV wand. Do you, really? Well, Think I'm... about this. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah, well, many, I don't know. I live every by time myself, someone so would, <laughs> I would feel a bit funny just waving a wand around in an apartment by oh, myself. Yeah, it'd be pretty awesome <laughs> yeah. if you're by yourself. <laughs> someone watching through the windows. <laughs> yeah. Waving a wand at the television. What's the word he says when he casts spells? Uh, oh, I can't remember. It's very different. Okay. It depends what the spell is. Okay, it doesn't matter then. Invisibilis. No, I'm making that up. Number... <laughs> Number, yeah, number four, never miss a shot. Number five, never muck up dribbling. That's fair. No, that's important. Oh, yep. Number six is out of, from left field, being able to drink. Number seven, what? have hang on, hang on. <laughs> drink alcohol. Well, I assume so. Uh, you know, I think that'll probably come true, <laughs> that one. <laughs> it's so funny because it's, it's all... Not, it's not that yeah. great. Yeah. It's like, I think he listens to us in the morning a lot. So there's oh, like... <laughs> And so it goes from, you know, basketball, basketball, yeah, let's have a drink, and then what, basketball, basketball. So he has, you know, and then he, number seven is like have um, like white hyper dunks. He names all the basketball shoes, like the Kobe shoes, um, Kiri shoes, Damien shoes. I didn't know about all his shoes. Oh, man, he is he's like a nine-year-old boy that's obsessed with basketball. Amazing. He knows everything about basketball. And then number eight, have every single basketball legends top ever. Number nine, have a time machine. Number ten. Have a time machine. Just chuck that in there. Yeah. And number ten, being able to produce food, especially gelati. I'm like, that's... that's that is an awesome list of ten it? wishes. It's so great. Especially gelati. Yeah. Especially gelati. Guess who's getting a gelati maker for Christmas? <laughs> Thank you.
today we're talking to Simon Hinckley, the Collection Manager of Terrestrial Invertebrates at Museums Victoria. Welcome to Breakfast, Simon. Thank you. What are terrestrial invertebrates? Am I right in thinking they're worms? Uh, basically, terrestrial invertebrates are a whole range of, it encompasses all the things like the insects, the spiders, the ticks, the scorpions. So it's everything that doesn't have uh, a backbone that lives on the land. So there's also freshwater invertebrates and there's terrestrial invertebrates and marine invertebrates. Ah. All the creepy ones. Yeah, so bug man. So the fact that we've been calling you bug man is fairly appropriate. It's, it's <laughs> yes. not too bad. Good. Yeah. The ones that we're going to talk about today sound particularly creepy. Gordian worms, what are they? Yeah, look, Gordian worms, it's, it's a group of uh, invertebrates that interest me, but it's something that I didn't know a lot about. So it was a really good chance for me to do a bit of reading and to, to learn a bit about them to come on here. So they're called Gordian worms because... It stems back to the Gordian knot where you've got this intractable problem of all things sort of, uh, I think the, the legend was, whoever could untie the Gordian knot got to rule Asia, Alexander the Great cut through with a sword or something along those lines. But anyway, when the Gordian worms are reproducing in the water, they often form these tangled knots. So it looks like a, a bit of a sort of orgy situation happening. Great. It looks like they can't get apart, <laughs> but they can. Um, so yeah, look, a female will lay um, up to 10 million eggs, which is incredible for something that has the diameter of about a millimetre. So incredibly fecund individual. She will lay these um, millions of eggs and it gets interesting after that because the worms then need a terrestrial host to parasitise. So they're parasitic worms. So they have to get from the water onto the land into something like a huntsman spider or a cockroach or a praying mantis. Sounds like, like a that. horror movie, like an actual horror movie. It is actually pretty graphic. And if you sort of, if you Google Gordian worms, you'll get some fairly um, horrific videos of them emerging from things like praying mantises and stuff like that. So Don't do that if you have breakfast. <laughs> if, if you're not a worm fan and some people are phobic about worms, um, give that one a miss. But certainly it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to see. And it's amazing to think that the insect can even survive the process for as long as it does with this thing growing inside. And basically, absorbing all its its bits. So so the eggs are in the water, they need to get on the land, they yeah. get inside some sort of animal, some sort of insect. Yeah, look, they and it's really ingenious the way they do this. Some of them will actually just have direct contact. So something comes to the water to drink or to, to look for food or something and they can get in that way and start developing. Some of them, incredibly, are able to get into an intermediate host. So if you think about a juvenile mosquito, which is a wriggler, their little uh, hatched larvae will get inside that, survive as the wriggler changes into an adult mosquito that leaves the water and flies around. If that mosquito is eaten by, say, a praying mantis, the little thing that has lain dormant inside the mosquito goes, this is the host I want, starts the development um, and then starts absorbing the host from the inside out. Oh, so it's that. this amazing two-step process that is, is really quite incredible. Wow. It's like something from a science fiction movies. People like to say things like alien. I mean, yeah. they don't burst out of your chest, but certainly it's this idea that something gets inside you and then just starts basically feeding and taking everything that it can. Yeah. The host dies. Good question. Um, some people, there were some papers that say, oh, look, the insect will continue to survive. Um, I would imagine that having most of your insides eaten out, by the time that the worm reaches maturity, it's pretty much occupying everything but the legs and the head. So you're basically a walking Oh, this is doing something to me, my hands. Um, so, look, theoretically the host might survive for a short period of time, but when you see that video of the thing emerging, it's, it's a fairly brutal process. It's not, it's not subtle. Um, and there's also... One of the other complicating facts is that once the worm is mature inside the host, it needs to get back to water to lay the eggs. So it's this, in a way, it would have been more smart to develop a host that lived in the water. But this, the Gordian worms have decided 
to go from the water as a juvenile into a terrestrial host and then need to get back to the water to lay eggs. So some of them have the ability to control the behaviour of the host. They actually oh, make the host... Oh, my God. ..because they have to get into water. How? That's a really good question. And people are saying different things. Some people are saying they cause the, the host to have um, a thirst or they drive it towards water. Some people are saying that it actually affects the central nervous system of the insect or the spider so that it actually just starts wandering aimlessly. It uses it like a puppet? Exactly. And in doing oh. so, the, the, the spider or the oh cricket God. is just wandering and eventually it will encounter water. Instead of just going uh, shelter overnight to food, back to shelter, it just wanders around and will encounter water. Then what they do is, right, the, so the instinct for the cricket or the spider is not to jump in. They don't swim. When you've got a worm in you, you jump into the water. So when you ask, does the host survive, it basically gets hollowed out. It then commits suicide by jumping in the water. Let's just say it does manage to get out of the water. A great worm has come out the end of its abdomen and ruined its genital structure as well. So if it does survive, there's not a lot to live for. At, at any point before that horrific series of events you've just described, does the host insect sense something in it? So would it be going, oh, these things aren't feeling very good inside me? That's a really good question. Um, and look, if, I would hope that it doesn't because if it does, what can you do? You can't yeah. punch yourself on the inside. You can't say, worm, be out. Be you gone. Can't, yeah, you it's can't like do a zombie movie. Sort of Once you get bitten, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I'm wow. hoping that it goes along in ignorant bliss as it's consumed from the inside. Um, they're, they're, some of them apparently do have the ability, the, the um, immune system, I suppose, can sometimes... There may not be a hundred percent survival rate. Maybe some of them aren't aren't successful, but certainly it's it's a very successful group in terms of there's lots in some rivers or creeks. There's a lot of them. So they and if you have ten million eggs, you only need a few of them to survive to continue the species. And where do you find them? Uh, you find them generally in slow-moving water, like uh, creeks, ponds. You can get them. So it doesn't matter what the water is. The worm doesn't know that you're. Uh, the water for your dog is not a creek. So often if you have like things like infested crickets or spiders in the house, um, they might have, end up in the toilet bowl, um, the shower. The, the, they were called horsehair worms because they often end up in stock water troughs and people go, oh, well, it must be the, the hair from a horsetail. It's come to life in the old days when people just went, oh, it's rained worms or <laughs> these horsehairs have come to life. So mm. you can find them in domestic situations, swimming pools. There's a couple of instances of people bringing them up. Now, I don't know how you do that, whether or not you've eaten an infested cricket. without Bringing them up it. as in vomiting them. Yeah, so just a couple okay. of cases. They, so they don't infest people. So if, if people are at home are going... Thank Christ for that. Yeah, because, you know, you don't want to get in the shower and have things like that suddenly emerging. Or to have it's zombie a, people wandering around with enormous worms in <laughs> Actually, looking for water. Yeah, that's... I've heard about that, Uncle. Good movie in this. So can I ask a question? Do these worms serve... A purpose. <laughs> that is a very good question because <laughs> when you just sort of anthropomorphise and go, oh, the poor praying mantis, it gets eaten alive, it gets drowned, it gets its genitals ruined, what's, what's the point of these worms? Yeah. Um, there will be a lot of things about them that we don't know. Certainly they form an important um, part of the food chain. So, for example, freshwater fish, often uh, if you catch them and cut them open, their stomachs are full of them. So in this case, it's the vertebrate eating the worms, not actually being infested with them. So they're part of the food source for things like fish and things like that. So they're an important food source. And who knows what good things they might be doing that we don't even really know how they control the behaviour. But, of course, when we make it all about ourselves, there is always the possibility if we can know how they're uh, making the host do what they want, could we have the ability to, well, 
you know, make people jump in the water or switch off, you know, mm. donate that second muffin or donate the first muffin or, you know, who knows yeah. what, what the, that ability to change the behaviour of another organism is quite incredible. So there's, as far as I know, there's no one in Australia who's studying these. There's only about a dozen or so species in Australia that we know of. You know, who knows if there's someone comes along and decides to specialise in this group, there could be dozens dozens more is there a gordian worm hotbed somewhere in the world <laughs> that's actually that's a great question and i'm not there's about 300 species worldwide i would assume obviously the wetter an area um i'm just guessing and saying rainforests might might be in yeah. the sense that you've got water everywhere that's where diversity often tends to be highest so we've only got about a dozen described species in australia out of about 300 worldwide but they think there could be about maybe 2,000 species mm. well i'm glad you described the the, the role they played in the ecosystem because my first thought was how do we exterminate these well, monstrosities? <laughs> <laughs> but um, if, if someone, I mean, if someone wanted to f- to see them, so just in a pond or water, what what do they look like when they're? Yeah, good question. So they're look, they're about in Australia, they're about thirty centimeters long. You can get about two meters, but I think that's in other two countries. Pieces, that's, that's two not in Australia. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's an unfortunate host whoever had that one. But um, in oh, Australia, you're about thirty centimeters. So I guess if you're looking, um, certainly if it's in a domestic situation situation like, um, as I was saying, like a stock water trough or a public swimming pool or something like that, if you see like a slow-moving sort of um, 30 centimetre, very, very thin worm, that's a possibility. Um, And, of course, we're not saying go out and pick these things up because, you know, maybe it's a really, really you know, they, they don't look like, they're not a snake, that sort of, obviously, but, you know, we never encourage people to just go, oh, I'll pick that up and have a close look at it in case it's not what we've said it is. Um, but, yeah, look, certainly if you're at a creek or a slow-moving water body and you see um, these things that look to be like, like a horsehair swimming, it's a strong possibility. And, of course, there are parasitic worms of people, like tapeworms and things like that, but these are a different group. So you don't have to worry if you see a Gordian worm in your dog's water bowl, fish it out, it's not going to get into the dog, it's not going to get into you. Thank God for that. Oh, all right. Well, that's, that's something. <laughs> We've been talking to Simon Hinckley, the collection manager of terrestrial invertebrates at Museums Victoria. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. I don't know what you guys are up to this weekend, but uh, Kath and I have been trying to make plans for the weekend. Uh, so I'm going to, to Tassie for one night, maybe back Saturday afternoon, and she's trying to decide... Um, Kath is very excited about the Seymour Alternative Farming Expo. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. Doesn't it? <laughs> and so she said... So she's all excited about it. I'm like, I've got to go to Tassie. And she goes, well... Okay, well, maybe we go Saturday afternoon or we go on Sunday. We'll drive up Sunday morning and we'll we'll come back. You know, I've got a gig on Sunday night. We'll come back for the gig. I'm like, yeah, we can, we can do that. Or you could go on Saturday if you like. She goes, you don't want to come to the Alternative Farming Expo? I'm like, well, I don't know. Do I? Like, what's... What's it? She goes, well, there's, to me. Yeah, there's sheep <laughs> and there's you know, other things and there's like tables of spanners. What makes the I'm like, what? what makes the sheep what alternative? Is, what makes this alternative? I don't know. Maybe it's what you do to them. Um, <laughs> but then she said, and there's like there's spanners. I'm like, have you been before? She goes, yes, it's great. But there's a table of spanners. There's all different sized spanners. And I'm like, maybe, <laughs> maybe you should just go on the Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, thing, I'd do it. I'd go. It'd be, you know, I've had no problems going, but I'm thinking maybe I'll find some other things to do on a Sunday. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, your partner really loves something and you go, yep, I'll go along I'll with that. I'll take on for the team. No, yeah. I was just thinking about that. Um, Steph was just been messaging me this morning about she went rock climbing. Um, oh, yes. She's in Sydney at the moment. She's got a friend up there who's a rock climbing Guy. Do they go like real on real rocks? Or well, I don't know. I don't centers? know what. I mean, it was just a few messages or whatever. But um, I'm kind of glad she's. In, in, no, that didn't come out quite the right way. <laughs> well, keep finish the sentence. Finish the sentence so it doesn't end the wrong way. <laughs> keep digging. <laughs> no, well, because we used to go. We we went a few times to that place in you know in the city. There's a the rock oh, climbing. That's, that's everybody can see. Everybody can yeah. see. Oh, yeah. glass. Yeah, and um, glass. Walls. I thought because I'd done it a few times. When when I was a kid, and I thought, oh, yeah, I seem to vaguely remember that I like doing this. Mm. And then we went, and then I got halfway up the wall, and I thought, this is a bit scary. I don't like it oh, at all. Oh, really? Yeah, no. You really? You yeah. saw it was the heights you were scared yeah, of? Yeah, it was the heights I was scared of. I and just also, thought you weren't into it at yeah. all. Yeah. No, I wasn't into it because I thought I was going to fall off. Anyway. But isn't there, uh, haven't you, you get you got a rope tied yeah, around you. Yeah, you've got ropes, but you, that doesn't change the feeling because you you're still no. up there, and you're still sort of starting. To Don't think. look down. No. Well, anyway, so you, but you've got to you've got to do it in pairs. So you've got to you have one person you belay belaying. So yeah. I said oh, I'd I'd volunteer to do the belaying because mm-hmm. she was really enjoying it, so she could climb up and down. And, and did I, you concentrate on your job? I don't think I would no. want you belaying. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's did you get distracted? <laughs> no. I, I said, I started, she started yelling at me because I was texting. <laughs> My God, that is classic Sparrow. <laughs> She Every says, time Jeff isn't staring at you and having a conversation, he looks at his phone. Yeah, so that was the that was the end of that one. It's you that gets so scared. You know the feeling. You're up there. She was doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we don't do that anymore. That's fair enough. <gasps> do you have any any? What do you, do you ever do things that you don't want to do? Oh, it's a little bit different and slightly less wholesome. No, not in that way. That sounded really bad. No, no, no. In, when we, when, uh, if Andrew and I um, have a drink and we go out, Andrew likes to stay up late and go for walks and stuff when he gets home. You know when you get home drunk and you want to, if Walk I've had a few off. drinks, I just want to get home and like be like, oh, I'm really tired. I'm going to eat some food and go to bed. Whereas he loves to, like, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a late night walk. Let's get yeah, a drink right. and go for a late night walk. Or if we're in the city and we've had a few drinks and I'm like, let's, let's get an Uber home now. He goes, let's just walk around for a while. Let's just go for a walk. Oh. Whereas I am someone who just goes, oh, I just really, and so I often go for you, we'll go late, I'll go walk. for a late night walk and I'll have a Even bit of a... Even though you just want to be at home e- in bed. Eating, like eating yeah. snacks over the sink is oh. what... Oh, that's all I'm thinking is... <laughs> and I will be walking around and I'm like, just want to be eating food right now, but we'll have a lovely conversation is, anyway. Is that, that's a good is that a drunken thing to do it over the sink? Yeah, because I can't control where things are going. So if you do it over the sink, it doesn't go all over the floor. Okay. You know if you're eating like chips or something. Right. It's quite an image. I sit down <laughs> with a plate or something. Do you? Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> that's, what, that's what plates are for, you know. <laughs> all right, this has turned into shame segment. <laughs> no, do you know, I used to... Um... Oh, there I am. Yeah. Did you turn me off? No, I'm I don't know what, talking, yeah, Sorry, I, didn't, I don't know what happened then. I relate to Andrew. Like, there was one stage where I was living across from um, the... On in the, uh, Albert Park, Albert oh, Park yeah, Beach. Yeah. yeah. So I live right across the road. So I would often come home at night and be like, "Well, oh, yep, I need to go need for to a so- walk to walk it off." 
Well, I'd put my togs on. No, oh my god, is that and then good? just no, I wouldn't. Be, it's not like I was drunk, overly drunk. It was just like, oh, I just feel like cooling off for a bit, and so I just put my togs on and walk across. <laughs> I feel like it's not okay. <laughs> what do you mean? I just wouldn't go. Like you're not meant to go for a swim after a few drinks. I feel like this is like the beginning of something you read in the coroner's court. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just nice. I would just go. I'd just go for a little dip in 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 the ocean, and then come back and hop in the shower and get all the slime off. Is Albert Park Beach? It's a bit slut, you know. <laughs> this is a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 